Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Going Off Track. Stephen, Brad, and Jonah. Yeah. Hello. Hi. You, like, you guys You guys actually time how we do that. Now I say it, then we wait, then everybody jumps on the mic. Oh, I wasn't just, I just wasn't paying attention. Oh, I was just I actually hear. saying hi. I forgot we're doing the podcast. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's cool. Hi, guys. Hey. Today's podcast <laughs> is, you, you remember back in the day when you would have a sitcom and they'd go, today's a very special episode. Today is a very special episode of Going Off Track. Since we started the podcast, I dare say this guest has been our goal. Many, many years ago on, on, a, on, a, on a very untitled television program, we did a, a request. Whatever you need, please come on. We just want to talk to you. Blake Schwarzenbach is here today. And if you know me, you know that this this is my Bob Dylan. Like He's my favorite singer-songwriter. Jawbreaker is my favorite band, Jets to Brazil. I've seen Jonah and I saw Thorns of Life to the point where we snuck into a party. <laughs> yeah, we snuck into a party in Bed Star or something. Yeah, saw them play. Saw them play. At people, a... people were very surprised you were there. I felt like they're like Stephen on Total Rock Show. Yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Trying to be cool here. Yeah, we brought the we brought the celeb star power to Bed Star. Yeah, yeah to uh, hang out. And then uh, Forgetters, of course. Forgetters. Um, wasn't he in? He was in a couple other bands. Uh, Jets to Brazil and Jawbreaker, some obscure bands you probably haven't yeah, heard no, of. Yeah, no, not a big deal at all. Um, but yeah, no. this is awesome. This is Steven's dream. Next, Chuck Reagan, we are coming for you. Yeah, for Jonah. And then, of course, for Brad, we have to get Paul Westerberg. Be fun. And yeah. then for Mike, we have to get Josh Homme. I'm, and Mike will show up for that one. That's his jam. Or Mike Patton for Faith No More for Mike. But this is like, uh, we didn't bring this up, so we can bring it up now. Uh, Jonah and I went to see Thorns of Life, and I had had enough Amstels because I was nervous. To in your defense, there was a bucket of free beer. There was a lot of which beer. it's hard to restrain yourself in that situation. You don't have to drive. You're seeing a show, and there's just buckets of beer around at like a weird private and it was like event. Eight thirty at night, like we, we were. It wasn't even late. By the time we walked out, it was ten o'clock. Well, it's funny. Yeah, my friend Sherry is friends with him, and she was like, "Blake's playing a show. Do you want to go?" And I was like, "Can I bring my friend Steven? She's like, "Well, it's pretty small." I was like, "You don't understand. <laughs> I have to bring Steven. She was like, "Okay." <laughs> so thank you, Sherry. But yeah, thank so we're you, at Sherry. this party. We've had a lot of drinks. Blake plays an amazing set mm -hmm. with uh, Thorns of Life, which was um, uh, 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 Daniela C was on bass and Aaron Comet. Aaron, Aaron Comet bus from fucking Crimp Shrine. You yes, know, and, um, who will be on here at some point. Yes, uh, great set. And we go, we walk up to Blake, and I'm 
drunk and just I'm drunk because I'm nervous because I'm awestruck. And I say to Jonah, who's also drunk, should I, should I show him my jawbreaker tattoo? Jonah does the right thing and says, "Yes, you should." <laughs> and we did, and it creeped Blake out. <laughs> and he he was he, he didn't know what to do. And then Jonah immediately whip smart, sobered up instantly, and did what any good wingman would do. He started talking guitars. But not too sober. Not, I, I was <sighs> drunk enough to steal the set list off the Stevens. Like, there's a set list on the wall. And I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Grabbed it off the wall like I owned it, handed it to Steven. And then I felt like Aaron or someone was looking for it after the set. And I pretended that it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry yeah. about that, guys. Sorry. But, uh, I still have know. it. Do you want it back? You don't get it. It's mine. Um, so this is just such a huge deal. Uh, we did something we've never done for the show and we, I think we should do more. We solicited our dear friends who also know worship Blake as much as we do. And they sent in questions. So I had my best friend from high school who got me in a job breaker. Um, our, our wonderful friend, Trevor Kelly, yes, uh, David Lewis, who used to run riot act media, sent in some questions. So thank you guys for doing that. And, um, don't worry. We we cut out all the part which was just me gushing and gushing over Blake. Yeah, we just, learned our lesson from that show. Yeah. <laughs> Do not like be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Uh Blake Schwarzenbach. <laughs> it's going on. So what what kind of prompted you kind of moving to New York? Really, just the the like ashen rubble of Jawbreaker and the kind of scene in the mission in '96. Uh, I had this, I think, right, right is a strong word. I had a kind of strong intuition or intimation that if I stayed, I was going to become a speed addict, bike messenger. Like there was so much sadness in that town and people's. I think bands were kind of spiraling at that point. You know, there was the feeding frenzy and all this kind of upheaval where that line between underground and public music got thrown around so much. So basically I just got scared and I was like, if I don't move out of here, I'm going to die. And, uh, I went out, I had friends in Brooklyn and I came out to visit and found an apartment really quickly. Like, and I've lived there ever since. <laughs> since 97, I've been in the same apartment in uh, Kensington, Brooklyn, we'll say. Mm. Where, you know, now I have enjoyed the distinction of being the most, the only and the most famous MC from Kensington. I'm boasting if there's any other spitters out there, they should come to me and we can talk. But I think I've got the title right now. Mm-hmm. What is, what's your MC name? OCD. Mm. Original Count Dracula. <laughs> Or Chris Logger, like he produces, you know, people thought I'd eradicate him because I changed back on Facebook, but they're still out there. <laughs> Villains. I heard your apartment has a lot of books in it. It does. It has a lot of books yeah. and a lot of records and paintings. But not a lot of food, <laughs> sadly. There's not a lot of like bread or milk. When, when did OCD start? Well, I think I probably from childhood for me, you know, I was I was a a lonely child who drew a lot <laughs> and counted things. It's right, Sesame Street, which is the origin of OCD, basically. Mm-hmm. Original Count Dracula, you know, the Count. Like, that's the original gangster mm-hmm. producer. Think about it. All he does is just count and gets off on numbers and beats. Mm-hmm. Jerry Nelson, R.I.P. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Lager, when did that start? I don't Well, so I guess, I guess last year, really, they, they went viral you know 
I needed to. I think I needed to uh, take a step out of Blakeland because I had all this <laughs> kind of fake celebrity through face, face and stuff. <laughs> and I wasn't enjoying any of the f the fruits of it. Like no one was giving me sex or beer or mm. property. <laughs> you know, mm. I get it, and I don't love swag verse swag verse mm -hmm. the swag verse makes me ill mm. yeah so, you know free beer I, and free sex much better than swag that seems more lasting than a handbag and a you know a hand job seems a little more enduring than a um ipod hand hand jobs over handbags hold on Can possible book down? titles and album <laughs> hand job over beautiful <laughs> I mean, what's it like sort of having people, especially like sort of like what happened here earlier, I mean, sort of having so many people say you're their favorite musician or is that something that's become easier to deal with or is that still strange or does it make you uncomfortable or what's that sort of like for you? No, I, I like it. I mean, I, it's nice to, I think some, some knowledge of the writing that I've done has settled into a, a more broader kind of catalog. So now when people talk to me, half of them say Jets. And some even say this Forgetter stuff or Thorns of Life stuff, you know, like they're just all songs that I've done with different people and in different band configurations. But I like, I like the idea selfishly that there's a through line that's me, that the, the I is, you know, coming from a specific place. So when people like people who like songs tell me they like my songs, I'm stoked. <laughs> you know, is, yeah. that, is that what led to the Blake Schwarzenbach tour? A, a, a real wild set of circumstances has both made me and left me standing up there alone like an American champion. But I won't say it was like I wanted to go out alone. I'll uh, say that, a, you know, it ended up God there. in his infinite dark wisdom decided that Blake should definitely be alone for a while. Now, how did that turn into the uh, the kind of storyteller's vibe you have on the show? Because every time I saw you in every incarnation of bands that you've been in, you know, you have a great way of talking with the crowd and, you know, stories kind of come out through the songs. And then you would tell stories short, long, in between sets. But this seems like just an embrace of that kind of, you know, almost tall tale folklore vibe of standing on stage. Yeah. Honestly, you know, a friend of uh, our band, Lance Hahn, who was the singer of Cringer and J Church, passed away a few years ago. And it was a really big deal in our kind of community because he was this tireless guy who just just played and wrote and played and he turned me on to morrissey and like i mean way back you know and like he just had great records super chunk cheap trick for crying out loud i actually already knew them but he, <laughs> he got me into him again you know <laughs> yeah. and just a great audiophile and uh he used to say this thing whenever we play together with jawbreaker he would always say shut up and play to me he would scream it and people would crack up because i'm a little long-winded <laughs> So that became this kind of positive, you know, uh, cat call at Jawbreaker shows. Because there's old Blake again, like, going like, you know, it reminds me of this time when we were uh, <laughs> running from the police in Florida at a Gators Expo. And then someone would just be like, bivouac. You know, you have to go like, right. <laughs> like, let's rock. I was at the show with Matt at the Coco 66 show you played kind of recently. And I thought the interactions with you in the crowd were so great. And it was so, like, kind of committed to the whole thing i mean do you like kind of having that kind of back and forth or kind of i like that you oh, kind yeah. of reprimanded people who are kind of being rude to i don't know i feel like there's no accountability sometimes for the crowd yeah yeah 
I don't know why what changed in me. I hid from it for years. And then I think I kind of had one of those network moments where I opened up my window and was just like, "This, these are all lies. You know, the idea that you have to be aloof at a show or that you're not a participant because you paid 15 bucks or whatever. And, you know, I just, there's so much awfulness out there that to see it happening at, at live music events also, like reproducing that misery, I wanted to, kind of wanted to get back in the game just to say, like, shows can be anything you say they are. It's like if you've got 100 people in a room and no one's being, you know, hurting anyone, like, that's kind of the discord spirit that I remember when they would just, just really change the, the protocol in the room that they had for those 50 minutes or whatever. You know, Fugazi shows where people would be freaking out because, like, what's what's that guy doing? He's just dancing and swinging his arm around. <laughs> and it, it, I think it really opened people's minds up a little bit. I also liked how uh, Fugazi lights up. Like, we want to see the crowd. It is it is a shared experience. Yeah. And so there was no tweaking and anything like that. Oddly enough, the only other time I'd ever seen that before Fugazi was I went to a John Cougar Mellencamp show. Same thing. Had the lights up on the whole arena the entire time. And that was just how he did it. And he would pull people up on stage. It was very odd. And then when I saw Fugazi for the first time, it was like that. <laughs> I had no one to look to and go, this is like that John Mellencamp show. <laughs> uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's but, a painter. Mm -hmm. He's a painter. I mean, he seems like a really creative person who's been, who's thought of kind of pejorative to, pejoratively because he has these great hits that everyone loves. But there's like clearly a much broader experience in yeah, Mellencamp's world. I mean, he paints. Like, who doesn't, who can't love that? When did you start painting? Really, when I was a kid, I, I read a lot of uh, picture books. I mean, kids' books, but also my dad and I read Tintin together. And that was kind of like, I would be left alone with stacks of Tintin books. And I would draw, as I call it. Like, drawing was a huge part of my loneliness and like, company were you an only child yeah oh wow yeah in berkeley in the late 60s so i wasn't alone in the sense that people came in and out of our house a lot mm -hmm. it's a very chaotic <laughs> kind of almost collective but private and neurotic house what'd your parents do uh, my dad is an architecture student at berkeley and my mom was being a mom at 18 he was 19 i think so mm -hmm. They, none of us knew what we were doing. That's yeah. what we've agreed on that. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were all trying very hard, <laughs> but no one had any kind of script in that moment. Shit, yeah, I remember man. my mother saying, it tw she said when, when my mom was 23 when she had me, and she said they were considered so old to have kids. Yeah. <laughs> How old? My mom was 23 when I was born. Oh, and right. considered by her friends at the time, like, what, why don't you, well, you're so old. What's going on? Why haven't you had a kid yet? This, of yeah. course, was in the South in the early 70s. So, yeah. Yeah, nine, mine was 19. Yeah. In Indiana, as we were talking about. Yep. <laughs> My mom was 30. Yeah, right yeah. on. The clock is ticking. I know, I know. Now I'm Get almost, on it, lock it down and build it up. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why you are so much more well-adjusted. <laughs> oh, yeah, so well-adjusted. <laughs> so when did sort of playing music start for you? It really, uh, it, I think it started in a living room because we had music in the house so much and my parents were trying to be 
different. They were trying to change their lives. They'd run away from Pasadena, California, and they're kind of thrown into this, we're going to have a kid, and we're both just starting to find out who we are. So, and they were, you know, hippies more or less, although I don't think they would ever call themselves that. But as a result, there was this huge record collection, and it was just constantly like Beatles, Stones, Birds, a lot of that California country western my dad was really into. And like Bakersfield stuff, like Buck Owens? And... I don't know if he was that finessed, but oh. uh, Flying Burrito Brothers oh, yeah. and definitely... Um, yeah, I don't know. Just uh, he just liked he liked country western and kind of cowboy music and thought that was he just thought that was cool and of course as a kid you're like that is cool. <laughs> you know, these guys singing about like wastelands and heartache and stuff and they, they look cool the suits were really colorful. So I just color color and sound were kind of my childhood. And then I I just kept loving music. Like middle school I got into the new wave and I was living in Portland with my dad and I bought a Wipers 7-inch because I, I read a review in the local paper that they had this. It was like, a you know, you should get this. It's Portland's favorite new band. How old were you when you read a review? Seventh grade. See, I wouldn't even know what that was in seventh grade. My, my reviews were my friends going, dude, put that down and listen to Minor Threat. Like, that was those reviews for me. Yeah. It's great but that we, you had the... We had that, too. Yeah, but of course. But you had the forethought to look in the... To read, see something in the paper about a band. That's... Amazes me at seventh grade. I think they had a good we weekly, even back then, mm -hmm. which would have been like 81 or two or something. I don't know what year it was, but I really do remember reading one of those free weeklies, you know, and <laughs> there being this picture and thinking like wipers. I don't know what that is. I didn't like it. Like when I got the record, I played it a couple of times and was like, that's boring. It's like <laughs> really dark. And, you know, at seventh grade mind, I wanted like Blondie. Yeah. I just listened to Blondie and ACDC and Pat Benatar, and like I'd go to those concerts. <laughs> and so your dad was in Portland, and so did your parents, uh, they'd split up, and you traveled in between? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, pretty much. I'd go, yeah, I moved to Colorado, and then my mom uh, moved and lives in Nova Scotia. So then I was going to Canada, cross country, and then but basically living with my dad. Where in Nova Scotia? Well, originally Halifax, wow. but now they've they are farming down in um, it's near New Germany, or Bridgewater. So it's, it's kind of the South Shore. You go up there a lot? Oh yeah, it's so freaking gorgeous. It is. It's like Europe. You ever been up there? Nope. No, it's it's pretty amazing. But Halifax is a pretty crazy town. I spent it, a few nights there. Yes. Just yeah, I did a motorcycle trip up through Nova Scotia one time, and it's just. Did you shocked. go to Cape Breton? Did you go all the way up? We went up to Prince Edward Island, yeah. Oh, cool. We went up and took the ferry across, I think. And I think there's a bridge now. This was like, this was like, geez, this is a while ago. This is like 15, 16 years ago. But yeah, I always thought, what a great place to go back to. Plus, it was the middle of the summer and it was like cold. <laughs> yeah, the ocean does not warm up there. Yeah. I mean, you go to the beach, it'll be really hot outside. Yeah. But you, the water is ice. Like, to me, you're being a California kid, you know, year round, it's, you got to commit. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know you don't go in the water. And that <laughs> water's not warm either in California, so that must be freezing up there. It's cold, and these kids, they go surfing. Like my sister's friends, the, these boys in high school would like be listening to the surf report at first period and ditch out in like February with, you know, three-quarter-inch suits on. They would go out and, and surf. Really? Yeah. That's it's, like dedication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to paddle and wait. 
Yeah. <laughs> as, as much as I, lo- I have a number of friends who surf and they're like, man, once you get hooked on it, I'm like, nah, I don't think it's going to happen. Actually, Dino, our guest yeah. the other day used to do it here. He would, he would go out in, the, in sometimes in the winter and like, just he'd be, he'd, he'd have ice on, on him, like in his hair and stuff. No, nah, I'd avoid that. <laughs> avoid that forever. <laughs> He's like, it's great, man. There's nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> like, <Come> yeah. <laughs> now, didn't you live in LA for a while mm-hmm. as a kid? Yeah, I went to high school in L.A. Mm-hmm. Well, I like to say Santa Monica because oh. we lived in Venice Beach. And, uh, yeah, I took the bus to uh, a very popular school. Which school? I, I don't want to say it really because I kind of <laughs> hate them. Okay. They're like, they're a preparatory academy in uh, Santa Monica. We're like, they, they're kind of a star grinder. I got it. Although that said, because this is on air probably, I had some of the best teachers there. Um, it was a great school in one sense, but it was also a very weird wake-up call because I kind of came out of Portland, which was a little more low-key. And then it was like famous people's kids and high-end, high-thinking academics. But also there was just this like Beverly Hills aspect that was wild. Like, yeah. A lot of cocaine cowboys, if you know That's what I'm saying. That's why I was asking because I used to be a, a sub in LAUSD and taught all around the LA area. But those schools were very, but they weren't part of that. They were right. very specific. I was wondering if it was a public school. Well, you know, we used to battle. I mean, we were the, we, when I say we, I mean me and two, four other people were <laughs> punks at that school. We'd go to shows and, you know, we were really into it. And you have to meet the other punks in your town. So there was like the uni, university high where Darby went. Like the uni punks hated us. They were like, you know, fucking trust fund, like bullshit motherfucker <laughs> gonna wail on you like it was gnarly and you'd, you'd have to like kind of connect with them you go to enough shows and they'd be like all right he's cool you know but didn't wouldn't wouldn't that school like based on like scientology and some weird educational program uni yeah well, had, i think it was a public high school wasn't yeah but it? they started tweaking it i remember reading stuff about the germs and how they weren't some part of there was they were experimenting with something that was like hubbard based this could be all speculation and maybe i read a review of the movie that never came out but although i did see shane west recently and wanted to ask him if he still had the darby tattoo which is a stupid thing to ask you know, you know my school. friend directed that film really we went to high, he went to the celebrity high school the director of what we do is secret well now we're in so there IMDb. you go yeah Full, that's why they have that blue circle on the maybe that was the hubbardness oh, that makes sense <laughs> All coming together. The ring is landing. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like seeing seeing the germs kind of... I, I never did, never actually. did? Darby was old... Well, yeah, I guess they, they... Yeah, I just heard about it in... I moved there between 8th and ninth grade to Venice. Okay. And my neighbor was ended up being one of my best friends. This crazy little drummer, skateboarder guy. Took me to see... Um, the decline of Western civilization, which was premiering at that point. So it was a great, like instant education. I was just like this, 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 this. And it was all kind of had just happened. Right. In the you were area. in it, man. I think it was right after. Yeah. It, it already happened because it was so combustible. But at least you had like a reference point, you know, it helped. Yeah. <laughs> no. And then, yeah, I would go see shows of the living artists, you know, that were doing that. And, um, I don't know. It was great. You know, it was, it was scary. Like, yeah, you'd be near to, in close proximity to people you thought were amazing or famous. And 
like Mike Watt, you know, I just, that was the coolest guy for me because he was so welcoming to people. And like, he was kind of uncle Mike to us. It was like the guy you could go up and talk to and be like, Hey kid, how you doing? And you're like, <laughs> Oh cool. He's like actually friendly. <laughs> <laughs> I love on every documentary that dude's in, he's driving a van. Yeah. It's so funny. Everything. To me. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. You can't stop. Yeah. You know, can't you, stop. You, they're gaining, you know, you got to keep, keep pounding. And he's still that nice and cool. Like I, I, the benefit of like interviewing Iggy Pop once and he was just hanging out cause he's a stooge and he's just literally hanging out after a show in a bathrobe just outside <laughs> Mike Watt. My wife was a booking agent and the, uh, her boss represented him and he would always tell us the story about, he would always call and she would pick up the phone. He would never say hello. He would just go, what? <laughs> and then the agency got a little bit bigger so they had to have all the calls were routed through a receptionist, not going direct to the agents. And she would have to explain to this poor young intern receptionist that when you hear a man screaming on the phone, just transfer him to Steve. It's Mike Watt because he just could never figure it out. She also, they also handled Jay Maskus and she said she knew he was calling because it was just silence. Very quiet. Feedback. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I, I want to have that relationship with my talent buying agency <laughs> where i just want a met alert bracelet and i just tapped it some green light would go off at the office and they'd be like oh no it's ocd like there'd be a red light for ocd and chris would be blue because he's cool and then blake would be kind of vague <laughs> i love these like maxwell demon sasha fierce characters that the personas rather that have crept up out of blake's brain <laughs> yeah well you know i listen to a, a lot of hip-hop and like the way personality proliferates with mm -hmm. doom or like artists that just completely blow my mind is in writing and in improvisation mm -hmm. you know the, many of these guys have 40 50 characters going and they're all putting out records mm -hmm. and like if you really i think if you're in your sink or if you're in your space of artistry where you're just like it's just flying out of me it's great to create a few personalities and kind of corral it or let or let it really you know use it when it's happening because it'll go away i think that's my fear always is the music is going to dry up any second <laughs> really and none of my personas are going to be able to write <laughs> do you use those personas when you write now for stuff like or rather did you use them for say forgetters or thorn stuff it it felt like those were steps towards like i think thorns to me felt it was such a fun band in terms of just like Oh, it's easy to just plug and play. You know, we were very, we didn't have much in the way of resources, but there was, I had a bunch of songs and Aaron and Daniela were just like, I mean, just the energy was like, let's just play because they're good songs and we can, we don't have to think about it too much. Where do we see them? Crown? Some, some weird house show, Crown, really far into Brooklyn. Yeah. And by them we mean you. And it yes. was the, uh, the opening act was a cat killing a mouse on the drum kit. I'm not even exaggerating. We are, I have photos of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They had some wild cats there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and rats, mm -hmm. mice. <laughs> that was an amazing show because it really took me back to college where you'd see a show in a basement, which has just always been my favorite kind of thing. Not as like punk stuff, whatever. But there was just this room where I went to school, this basement that like Dave Matthews played and the next week Fugazi played and then Nation played and then Bikini Kill played. It was just this we're sitting in it now this small of a space and that show really like took me back and it was I don't know, something i'd missed i remember leaning up against the wall and realizing i shouldn't have touched that wall now my elbow is contaminated <laughs> yeah, yeah totally kind of. i felt the same way at that show honestly 
No, really, because I think, and now that you're saying it, I feel like somewhere along the way when everything got kind of professionalized and monetized in alternative, mm-hmm. like the, the space where people could, you, you were in charge of your show, like house shows or backyard shows or ramp shows, you know, for a kid, that's so exciting. You're like, I can like do what I want in the space. And now it's so guided, you know, the club, you get in, you get shaken down, you have Mm -hmm. to buy stuff, drinks or whatever. And that's great if it's, you know, it's nice to have a good sound system, but I feel like the idea that, oh, wait, we could just do a show and our friends could come and then other people will come and that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I I found out at that Mm -hmm. in Thorns, we did a lot of those and I was like, oh, it's still going on. That network exists and people just keep reinventing it because they're so disgusted by what's on offer. Right. But you also had to like work for it. Like it's like you had to find out about the show, and someone had to tell you, and then you had to sit in the train for an hour, and then I feel like you kind of value the experience more. It's it not just going like, into a club. Yeah, definitely. It was like every Fugazi show if you live in Northern Virginia because they never advertised, and you always had to hear it from someone, and then spend five hours waiting in a park for nothing because it was up the street, and your friend was a moron. Not that that happened to me. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> And then we saw that show where you guys played in an art gallery. It's really small. Our friend, I'm friends Elk. with Sherry, who you, I think you went to school at NYU oh, with. Yeah. And she yeah. told me about it, and I went with her, and she has all these old, like, she's like, check out these seven inches, and she has all these really old original Jawbreaker seven inches. Yeah, yeah, she's she's my lady. Yeah, she's She took awesome. me to see Paul Weller. Oh, really? Nice. Who I'd never seen. How like, was the, the Nokia. Show? It was great. Yeah. But then, then she was like, let's go backstage and say hi to Paul. And I was like, I'm not going back there. <laughs> like, they have a relationship. They're friends. And, it's like, and, I, and she was like, you're coming with me. So I sat on the couch and just like looked at the water on the floor while she visited. And then I was like, let's get out of here. I got to go. <laughs> I wouldn't want me backstage at my show if i didn't know me you know what i mean i just felt like totally intrusive he was there looking great like i'm I'm the same way with shows like that you know the backstage thing i'm half drawn to it half like i don't want to bother these people you know a friend of mine put it that he 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 ended up backstage at a show recently our friend jimmy at a justin timberlake show and he just kind of drunkenly ended up backstage and he was and he has been dealing with bands his whole life and he said some like a one of Justin's people came out and saw the crowd that he was standing with and looked at him and he went and I saw the way he was looking at me and I've been him looking at me going <laughs> who's that guy <laughs> so I left because I don't want to be that guy and I totally understand I've been in that same situation where it's like let's go backstage and you're like I've been backstage and it's very boring and there's I want to go watch the show you know when it's you fun know? is when you can take some a newbie yeah <laughs> like. It's South by this year. I took Aaron to the, uh, the to Dave Grohl's. Uh, oh, Sound City. Yeah, and and like you know, we came in the door and and they gave us these passes that had triple A on them. And Aaron's like, triple A, what does that mean? And I go, you know, like all access. And he's like, yeah. I go, this is the next level. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, we can go anywhere. <laughs> and like at this point, Stevie Nicks was on stage, and I'm like, you can go up on stage if you want. And he's, he totally didn't believe me. I could see in his eyes. He's like, whatever. I hope he's thinking, I hope we can just get a few free drinks. So I just, you know, well, next thing you know, he's really backing into anyway. Dave yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's no other reason to be backstage if you don't know yeah. the band than to get free drinks. Yeah. Yep. Yes, yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. And have the, you ever thought about doing... I'm sorry, Brad. We, <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever considered doing stand-up comedy or anything like that? You did refer to yourself as the Steve Martin of indie rock. Yeah. 
I I don't know. Comedy is such a beguiling thing to me. You know, I, I don't like a lot of what American comedy has come to be in the last 10 years, maybe. Um, it's not a culture I'm familiar with. Um, I do have friends who do it, who I really like, and I like their act. Like, I think it can be coherent and intelligent. And like, even if it's kind of random, that's when, that's when comedy died in America, when random took over and was just like, I'm just going to do 40 different gags and see if I can, you overwhelm somebody with random and they're like, this is so random. (laughs) That became like an act unto itself. And I, I found it really alienating because the world was completely caving in, but everyone was just like, you ever noticed? I don't know the terms, but this situationalists, this people and all that. Do you see that? I see that too. What if you thought about it this way, that observational Seinfeldian type? Yeah, that, and then, but then it just got pushed, right? The people just pushed it past irony. Like irony was completely eviscerated. So it came to mean not the opposite of the intended claim, but something different, like something hateful. I'm I'm going a little out of field here, but I feel like comedy became very hateful to me. I was violent, like, and it wasn't a, like because it was talking about blood or guns or guts. It was about petty, you know, petty dating complaints. It was just like people just bitching and moaning, and and like let's yeah, let's hate on these people and let's hate on these people. And don't you hate these people? And I'm that person. And it's true, like, there, we are a, there's a generation of robots who have taken over the major cities in America and the major industries. You know, these 26-year-old tweakers who, like, they can only do social media and they can only speed date and they can only speed dial. And if I, it's going to take stand-up to, like, battle the robots, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm a reluctant warrior, though. You know, I've got a music career. I'm trying, I'm trying to take care of music and, like, I can't be doing the comedy, too. <laughs> I just thought the last show was so it was so funny to me like it was the, the show was great but all the stuff I felt like some people got it and some people didn't but I felt like all the stuff with the music stand and the tuning like that stuff to me I was so entertained by good well you're who I want at the shows and, well yeah I felt like the vibe some people were like oh get on with it and I was like no this is like this is like a committed thing and like I like I, I was I don't know I got really invested in it <clears throat> cool yeah I've, it's interesting because on this I just did this repeatedly for like three weeks and I'd think the show was going great. And then afterwards, someone would come up and say, hey, I really liked your show. And I was like, thanks. You know, I did too. And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry everyone didn't like it. Like, I don't think they got it. <laughs> so I was thinking the room was like, I was like, oh, I got this one. I'm doing great because I was doing a lot of this kind of between stuff, which was actually the content for me in a way. It's like you just get to see what it is to make a show. You know, I don't call it deconstruction or anything. I'm actually that slow and clumsy and like, (laughs) I need time if you want to do it properly. But I wanted to share that with audiences like bands. They're not magic. I mean, they don't, you have to tune and you have to like plug things in and, you know, remember words. And so it was, it was a real experiment. Yeah, I thought it was cool. And obviously, like, I'm sure there's people in the audience have expectations like, oh, I want to hear this song. I want to hear this song. So I thought it was cool to be like, this is what you get. This is my thing. It's DJing, I think. I just play what I have in my bag. And literally, like the song lyrics I have, 
because I'm doing so much new stuff that I can't, I don't want to try and memorize them exactly. Although I, I'm sure they're in here, but I use a, I now use as you saw a music stand and a lighting system. <laughs> That's really working on my lighting. That's the problem with the show is I need a dedicated lights coming right down on the lyrics, so that any you know any house system can't mess me up. Like I've got my own light box. Just get your book light, man, from Sky Mall. I want one of those. Just jam it right up there. The price of his toys or whatever. Yes. It's, at a, it's yeah. next to the giant sumo table, which I sadly own. I think I'm going to do a Kickstarter for a book light. You should. You should. I, my I would target is going to be like twenty nine eighty five. I think. You got it. We're yeah. in. And the, the reward is a, is a book light yeah. that I'll sign. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be Blake's book light. Thank you for your $4 contribution. <laughs> As long as it's not the ones with those little like watch batteries in them, because no. I hate those things. No, and I have a book light with those. Oh yeah. And I, you know, you can't. No, ever this has replace a plug them. with three prongs that you have to plug in for the book light. That's an important book. Oh light. really? Yeah, that's what I want. 120 volts. That's what I want. <laughs> with an adapter for European books, because they're bigger. Not I'll tell you what's really cool in an anti-gravity universe is to get two Tech 12s, throw them up, you know. The turntables, because they always have that gooseneck lamp on them. Yeah. So you just put those up, and then you could spin, because I like to play the but records. But in the anti-gravity universe, then the, the needle's not going to uh, fall against it. Mm -hmm. True. Well, thanks, Dream Crusher. <laughs> yeah. There goes that one. Here, here, get used here. to it, man. Brad, oh, always crushing here, dreams. But we could get, here we'll get, well, here's what we'll do. We'll get like a, a metallic slip mat. And then put a little magnet on the tone arm, and then the magnet will pull, pull the needle down. Yeah, but magnets can't pull anything in an anti-gravity universe because... What? No. Yeah, they can. Nope, not at all. If we're going to make up rules, that's what I did. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't make up rules. <laughs> we're talking about something that's totally doable here. All right. Once you figure out how to make the gravity go away, I'm in. You just go up in the space shuttle or whatever. I'm fine, whatever. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. 
That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I had, I had a question. Uh, this might be a little non-sequitur, but... I was reading from the anti-gravity. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I guess anything you, is an anti-gravity at this that point. From that. Um, I was reading an article recently. You were saying talking about social media and kind of this younger generation, and uh, they were saying the technological innovations are all towards connecting people and less about like, like whatever hoverboards or flying cars or whatever. It's all kind of socially based. I mean, and you've had an interesting relationship with social media as well. I mean, how how do you feel about social media in general do you think it's a positive or negative thing what's your relationship like with it i just think it's a wild wild i call it a particle accelerator because i feel like it's a a, a, you know a a super collider or something where there's so much information going so quickly in so many directions and the messaging the advertising is so extreme for me it being like a tv was probably the worst thing i knew up till the internet you know right and I like to me, I experience it sometimes as kind of psychic violence, like being pounded by pornography or abs builders, and then even sicker to me because I love good porn. I have no problem with that. What I don't, what was really pornographic to me is young people branding themselves for dating or for their band or for their company. These robots from Stern School of Business at NYU, you know, all those people. You know what I mean? Like NYU people who are just like hashtagging the fucking shit out of everything and like i'm just a brand and why don't you come brand with me and we could brand together we'll have a little brandy and then we'll, we'll rebrand and i'll do anal and it'll be great <laughs> and then and then i'll never see you again you know it's like it is not connective i think it's like kind of wildly d- destructive and disjointive do you well, think we're going to see repercussions like down the road with this st- kind of culture like people who came up with it who don't know how to relate to each other <laughs> we're in it yeah no, that's why I call them droids or robots. I meet these people at shows sometimes. Mostly not at my shows, though. Music people tend to be a little more coherent. And arguably, we could have an aesthetic discussion about that. I mean, it could be, I think drums, actually, or like the through line of music keeps you calm and sane. You know, when you, I, I'm sure you guys may feel this way when you get stressed out. Like, you go to your headphones or, your, or home, ideally to your speakers. And just put on like a really cool record and you're kind of like, okay, I can feel my pulse slowing down. Now I can remember where my keys are, <laughs> where my wallet is, like once the, I'm in my groove. Yeah, I mean, see with children. Jeez. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, God. Put any, like, that's the first thing to go for. Throw drums in front of them and let them pound it and calm mm-hmm. down. And then they just chill out because it's energy they want to get out because they don't know what to do. But yeah, even you talked about like the thumb generation now. Yeah, kids, kids, there's kids who like ringing the doorbell with their thumb. Kid, oh, they, really? Like <clears throat> everybody? Like if, if you were to go ring the doorbell, you'd go like that, right? They go like this. Yeah, index versus thumb. Yeah. And it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's a mutate. I mean, I think we're in a mute, mutant <laughs> era in a way, like bodies and machines. I mean, this is what the cyberpunks guys were talking about, which I always thought, oh, that's fancy. That's that's imaginative. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's kind of like a Ballard universe. Yeah, the singularity <laughs> is coming. Yeah, that, that does trip me out because now at this point in my life where I look at all the, you know, the sci-fi and comics I read young, when I was younger and I'm like, son of a bitch. It's all H.G. Wells, you know? It's like who, you know, predicted cell phones and uh, scuba diving, you know? And it's the same pattern. It's 
bonkers. Every time I start drinking, I get in this conversation. I, go, I can hear myself going these rents. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, artificial intelligence is going to get smarter than us, and this is going to be a real issue where we have to, can't stop innovation, and they're going to realize they're so much powerful than us. They're going to turn against us. It's going to be like <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. It's going to happen in our lifetime, and everyone's just like, <laughs> but I think it's really true. Well, I think what's more, more insidious to me is I think it's happening in the human body. Maybe that's what you're saying, but I feel like some of these kids are like so vacant and aggressive in their ambition. You know, these like ATM addicted, like riddling addled clerks, bankers, bureaucrats, mid-level functionaries, you know, Stern School of Business. It's not even riddling, it's fucking Adderall. Because if there's a drug now that makes you focus on one thing over and over again and you can't focus normally because there's so many options you know mm-hmm. there's like if you any kind you get new information from a tweet you know it's the same part of your brain that's you know stimulated from you know drugs you know it's any kind of um it's an endorphin rush so it's like ooh, something new something new uh, what uh comedian dana gould has a great line of he said i used to wake up in the morning and when i have breakfast and now sadly i have this thing in my mind of what i miss and I shouldn't be that way. Oh, that's so it's awful. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, I don't want to be that way. I have children. I want to hang out with them, but because I'm Ugh. doing the thing, yeah, trying I think to that's, figure it that's out. Like really, the haunting yeah. of this country. I mean, I feel it. I'm haunted, but part of inadvertently or inexplicably, like forgetters as a project. All I do is write about the terrible events of whatever date. And I, ever since then, everybody has been trying to remember what it was like to be free. We weren't free before the terrible events of whatever, you know, when those things happen. <laughs> but that's became this real, like, line in the sand of memory where people are like, it was, it was great, and then it was terrible. And New York has this, like, very interesting way of dividing time. And so I think that's affected by all this technology the way technology affects memory, and certainly the way media controls or organizes collective memory. You know, they can just, I mean, the New York Times can just write the narrative and pound on it for a couple weeks and it's law. Right. It's like, well, we know because they're the most citable, you know, the most But is it different than it, but is, see, see, I'm the guy that says that a lot of these things have been around forever. I mean, the newspapers definitely were a hell of a lot less free a hundred years ago or even maybe... 60 years ago, you know, they were controlled by a few people that had an agenda. Um, well, Washington Post was owned by one woman forever, Yeah, you know, but I don't know how much she dictated of what was going on wow. in the content, you know what I mean? Hearst obviously did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think, I agree with you. I mean, I think this is time immemorial, as they once said. But it's become more exaggerated. Maybe it's just my age where I'm, I'm noticing it. I'm more, I'm more concerned about the record. You know, like I want historical justice right. in my lifetime. <laughs> I, want to, I want to be able to just say like, this is apartheid. Like right. look at it and everybody admit it. Get down on the mat, the New York Times, and say the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is straight up apartheid. Oh, yeah. You know, we're mm-hmm. all in the room and it's been going on for our whole lives. And they nobody, still won't say it. Yeah, nobody yeah. will name it. Because that it would is. be unobjective to <clears throat> call apartheid apartheid, right? <laughs> that would be un- that would be unfair to the other side. Mm-hmm. And that kind of commitment to total deference is just like it is. It is bothersome when it seems everyone is strewn into the gray area and won't you know call a spade a spade. That happens 
in this country constantly and throughout the world. And it's, it's well, we, it, we want to tread lightly. And I'm like, I just long for someone to tread very loudly. Well, yeah, that's why I play. You know, music is the best place to do that. And not because it's like apolitical or anything. It's just, that's how I calm down. I can get worked up if I talk about what's going on in the world. And people seem to like to talk about this stuff all the time and get themselves really ramped up. You know, and then, so how do you come down from that? That's kind of the question in, in being alive for me. Well, it can be a release for that, but it can also be an escape for that. You know, like you can go to somebody else's show and forget your troubles for a while, you know. Oh, God, that's, I love that moment. No matter how bummed I was I, when I used to go to shows, <laughs> um, <laughs> like that was, I always had this moment of forgetting everything while, you know, a good band was playing or a good yeah. song that came on. And it's something that... It's weird. I remember one of our friends, when we were first talking about music, she was like, you are a music person. I went, what do you mean? She went, you know what I mean. <laughs> and it's like a weird collective, which is why we all got into this to begin with. It's the you know, original like. straight edge when you think about it. <laughs> you know, people got all sweaty about edge and stuff. <laughs> but it's like music people are, that's an edge of its unto itself. Mm -hmm. of like you're either in the music, the living music world, or you're about to be or you never will be. I'm not trying to spin that into some hard line thing. <laughs> if you're not now, you never were, man. Yeah, kinda. If you're not now, you never were. Oh, God. They used to have straight edge shirts that said that. I know. Norman <laughs> Brandon said that to me two weeks ago. I remember, you know, the best forgetting everything moment I had when I moved to New York in 97 um, or 98, Unwound played at the Cooler. Remember that place? The Cooler, yeah, dude. I remember the meatpacking district. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They played, like, it was a CMJ thing or something, and I knew them. You know, we were friends from the West Coast, and I was so lost. Like, my band was over. I just moved to New York. I was going to be a writer. That was my fantasy. Like, I mean, I applied for internships at all the major literary journals, and, and it's like, I'm just going to be a writer, man. I hate music, you know? <laughs> Who wouldn't after, like, Nirvana and the fiasco of, you know, people dying, and uh, so I was like, I'm going to do something sane, like move to New York and work in a magazine. <laughs> Little did I know that was nuts. Because that industry doesn't correlate at all with being sane. That's yeah. not sleazy. Oh, shit. <laughs> no. God. So, I, yeah, and I was really stressed out. And they came and I, I went to the show and I sat behind on the stage, like behind, um, I guess behind Justin's guitar amp and the whole floor. So it had this like fourth component of just like floor, you know, ass shaking bass and they got into i should know the song but i can't think of it at the moment but they got into one of their jams where i was like i just started fucking crying and fell apart and no one could see it because i was behind the amp <laughs> it was a really dark stage and it was utterly and i mean this in the sense of theater cathartic like i came out of that show so mellow and just like i'm gonna be listening to this record a lot this year obviously i need <laughs> to go back to the space and like do some time <laughs> But it was also just like a bodily, you know, like the great thing about intense ha hardcore music, I would almost call it, without it having to be fast or anything, is that it can be physically cathartic. Like it, your body just kind of melts in the noise or the, you know, the ecstatic volume. It's funny to watch, you know, because as a big fan, you know, seeing you from Jawbreaker up through, you know, all incarnations, like the journeyman aspect of your artistic career. And it's just because I remember when I first heard about Jets, which was uh, literally it just happened on the Internet. Some website. And I was like, what the? Uh, 
he immediately called my friends. He's got a new band. Wait, what? Spins around and then um, various tours and things got to see it. But then to see that go away and then wait for a while, you know, um, what's he doing? Oh, I think he's teaching. Wait, what? You know, and you hear things throughout. So how did you know through each incarnation of a group that it was over? That the group was over? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just think you have to call it sometimes, you know, if you feel like you're not, new ideas aren't happening or, I mean, sometimes it was just very pragmatic. Like someone's moving out of town and you're like, well, we're not going to do this band with a ringer. Like we're not going to hire someone to come in and you can't do that. I think in a fully integrated band where it's like, it's hard to replace people. Um, so sometimes I would self evacuate, <laughs> you know, I'd fire myself or I don't know. I just, I, and I, maybe I, I think my, some bandmates have thought like you you left too soon. Like we could do a lot more and I'm totally sympathetic to that, but I, I have to stay alive as like a person and a writer too. And if it feels like people just aren't really loving it or contributing to it, or if it becomes a job, like I think it's, it can be kind of deadly. And I, I never want to put out a record where it's like, Oh, that's the one they just had to, the obligation record. You know, is forgetter still happening. We can't quite know at this point, Jim. It seems that uh, the ship is disabled and lost in the lunar orbit. And she's limping along, but I'm, I'm going to beam myself ahead of Europe this summer and just do a little uh, shake and bake. <laughs> <laughs> and by that, I mean Blake will be over on the continent, you know, ringing bells in Germany and whatnot. Oh, the bell choir Aca thing. Acapella, I guess. Right so I'm going to need Chris Lager and OCD there definitely as backup. So the three so of us you, are going to go over there and teach them Germans how to live. It's about time. So, uh, so basically, with the other guys, you always have a band in your head. They got my back. <laughs> yeah. One of your old <laughs> bandmates recently cut my mom's hair. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Daly. Cut your mom's hair? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's oh, a hairstylist now. That's amazing. Yeah, and she sent me a text message that was like, "Chris from Texas is a reason is cutting my hair." And I was like, that is a text I never thought I would get from my mom. How does she know who Texas is a reason is? There's so many X's in that. I can't yes. even believe it. <laughs> um, uh, we want to do something now we've never done on the podcast, which is a giant hug. No, we'll do that later. But um, when uh, we found out you were coming, uh, Joan and I reached out to our friends who are as diehard as we are for you and your work and said, send us some questions. And they did. So we have a, we have a few that we wanted to hurl out at you. One is, uh, the first one is, uh, from my best friend from high school. Who I was at that show with in 93, who was like, you were going, okay. And changed everything. And he, uh, had a very interesting question of, uh, what are your thoughts on the university adjunct system versus tenure and how it speaks to a larger social culture? Cause he was a teacher as well. And now I think he works for Amtrak. If he if he has three hours, I would love to do this. I'll give you no, his me, number. Yeah. yeah, I think that they're both horrible systems. I think tenureship is just as bad as adjuncting, and it encourages the worst kind of academics. You know, it's just they're grade grubbers and suck ups. I'm in that world a little bit. I'm about to be again. I'm doing a PhD, and I'll tell you, the culture in academics is poisonous. Like ideas aren't necessarily rewarded; they're often stolen by people who end up getting tenure 
you know, there's so much unoriginal, coercive kind of scholarship of, oh, I just do this. Oh, I just do that. You have to brand, obviously, in order to get tenure. You need like a hot angle. And I've seen people just straight up steal theses, thesis ideas, because they're, they're lazy bureaucrats. And often that's who's going to end up with the corner office because they're going to they're going to plug at it for years. Whereas creative, liter, I'm in literature, people who love language and are obsessive about language um, are probably going to get bored by that and go, you know what? Maybe I'll go work at Amtrak. I'll have mm-hmm. better stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, who's going to write a novel about the inner workings of the university? And we've had that book. That's been the, the next interesting American novel for about 40 years. Yeah. Like Saul, Saul Bellow probably finished that one or Philip Roth. Just We didn't need it again because it's still the same system. Right. Be polite. Get along with your peers. Go to the faculty mixers. You don't know. shake it up. God, don't shake it, it. Yeah, shake it up enough to get funding, but, but definitely don't shake the tree. Right. So and, it's, a, it's, it's a corporation there. That's ridiculous. It's a, yeah, I don't know. It, there's ways you can get fired that are very shocking. I've seen people get untenured or let go, and you're, and there's no real law, but it's, but once it's done, I don't know. I, I sound paranoid, but I mean, I've seen people just disappear. Like, you thought this person was really a part of that community, a great, great teachers, and someone didn't like their politics, let's say, and it's like, well, he's not going to be coming back next year. And you're just like, but that was the most interesting teacher here. Yeah. What happened? That's, that's what happened to my dad. <clears throat> he used to teach college. That's exactly what happened to him. And was it a, something about his attitude? He didn't get tenure, and it was because he was, you know, he was too liberal and just like, whatever. And a bunch of people actually quit along when he didn't get it. Other teachers, just because they were fed up with the system. Yeah. Jesus. Well, now what I feel, though, is it's liberalism that runs the academy. And by that, I mean not necessarily progressive, but very status quo, kind of safe, centrist politics. Right. Which they call lefty. They're not. You know, if you if you deviate from that track too much and you want to do too much work about an unpopular subject, there's no box office. There's no sex in it. Right? <laughs> so they're like, sorry, we can't keep you. Uh, people just don't seem to be interested in your project. That's but that's like Clintonian, yeah. you know, right down the middle. Like, that's not exciting. And if, at higher education, you should be excited. You're paying, you're not working so you can go there. You know, you'd think like, shouldn't these be the best ideas? Isn't that what the American university is about? Our best yeah. ideas? It's not. Now it's just about the, the, the sure ideas. Sounds like NASCAR. Uh, Bert, thank you for kicking this off. Thanks, uh, Bert. That was a beauty. <laughs> Uh, this next one is from, uh, I believe you know this gentleman, Trevor Kelly. I love this man. Yes. <laughs> He's one of the few journalists I, I really like. Uh, Probably because he writes about me. That's true. <laughs> Thanks, <It's> true. Trev. <laughs> um, in your, um, Can in you your read se- it in Trevor's voice? Oh, God. Can, can you do it? Can you do Trevor? No. Oh, man. Um, in your recent tour, Why Chemistry? You know, it was the unsung hero of the album. And uh, I think... At multiple, at different points, everyone in Jawbreaker thought it should have been the single. And we never played it live for some weird reason. Just a quirk of the band, like, you want to practice that? Nah. Let's do these other songs. So it was kind of this, I don't know, it was just like a secret track on the record, but people really liked it. And it was more personally true to me. That was really my high school, the celebrity high school, and the kind of frustration of being in a being alone in high school, which who can't relate to that? 
Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out it's like a kind of good folk song. I mean, I can do it alone in a... I just think of Evan Dando when I sing it. And I just like get into the, the Dando space, which is my golden... Like I used to just sing Lemonheads records before Jets shows to warm up. That's that's my comfort zone. What's your favorite Lemonheads? Come on, feel. Uh. That was my like... I would just go through... Big Gay Heart to me is like one of the most underrated oh like how brave is that song yeah oh it's amazing down about it that song is one of the most positive tunes yeah ever God, love yeah that's that great i love that band i mean mm -hmm. i think it was the australian people where they just had this great sound but i like all of it you know mm -hmm. i mean I like early they were a band that i just grew up they made me write better and take more chances and melodically it's so rich and then he toured with the descendants Basically, yeah. he had Carl Alvarez and Bill Stevenson yeah. as as the Lemonheads for one tour. Like, yeah, and so. I like that that record mm -hmm. uh, has some some really good tracks on it. I don't know. I just he always his solo record I think is amazing. Like, mm -hmm. I just think he's always going to have really out there great ideas, and you know, he's just he's so tuneful. I back that. See, right there with you. This comes from our friend David Lewis, who um asks uh delicately what do you th what are your thoughts on reunions and if you think they're worth it i'm trying to think of the ones i've seen that i really liked and i would be i'd be afraid of offending a band by saying it was reunion when they'd actually been just plugging <laughs> <away. laughs> it could be it's hard know? to tell it's sometimes true. Really yeah we've yeah. talked a lot about it here on the podcast with bands who've broken up and reunited and bands who've thought for um as bad as it sounds just for their livelihood, breaking up to reunite a few years later because they didn't realize that, you know, it's kind of like what you said about Jawbreaker. Like you watched, you know, the power of that band grow after it ended, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't want to think about, it's hard to not, it's hard to not think that you're just going to capitalize on it if that were to happen with either Jawbreaker or Jets or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, um, because I think I've gone to a few shows where I've thought, that was great. I mean, if the band is good and they're in their music, um, I wish I had a great example, but I've seen shows where I, I thought, yeah, this I'm having a great time. I love this band again. I get to see them. I think seeing Super Chunk a few years ago at the Seaport, like, it just blew. I was just there. I was like, this is no Pocky for Kitty. I'm in my apartment in San Francisco going, how do people do music like this? And it, I don't know if it was a reunion or they're just their super chunk kind of seems perennial. Yeah, I don't think they ever officially. I don't think they. Broke, but they, broke up. yeah, they were really present, and I thought the energy was amazing in an outdoor show, and you could just see people looking around, just being like, "Yes, yeah. and like I can't believe this is happening." I think the Pixies are kind of the the main example because they came back and just played everything, and they did that Doolittle tour, which you're like, okay, that's kind of cool to hear it all live. But now they're doing new stuff, but Kim quit. So now Kim Shattuck's in the band, which seems like a totally different <laughs> vibe to me. And she's like my favorite female vocalist of all time. But I'm like, that's not the Pixies. That's but the Puffs. Also, like I have no, you know, it's like weird. The Pixies is a good example of like when they first reunited, they were playing much larger venues than they had played at their height. They did a week at Hammerstein. Yeah. You know? Like they were never playing venues that big mm. or yeah. So like, and there's a few bands that, you know, 
You know what would have been a great reunion show, I think? I honestly believe it would have been The Clash. And supposedly it was on its mm. way to happening because yeah. everybody in the band was still had very relevant musical careers. Like they were in shape, you know? Mm-hmm. And like those guys... Because I remember hearing that it was supposed to happen, and I, I was like, too. "I was like, you know what? This should happen because all these." Because I had just seen like the Mescaleros, and it was fucking awesome. And I was like, "This could work." Like the Clash, the Clash reunion now at this point, which would have been like, I don't know, when did he die? Like, 11, 11 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's so long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, My, you know, the, um, Jeremy and Chris from the Jets went to the St. Andrews show of Joe Strummer. Or not St. Andrews, St. Is that right, St. Andrews under the, in Dumbo? You know, that big hall under the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, yeah. Is that what it's called? I know what you're talking about. It was his last show in New York, and they invited me, and I was like, I can't go. I'm a, I had some dumb reason, and I've always regretted that. Yeah. That, I loved him at that point. Mm-hmm. I thought he was so fearless. Yeah. Like he always is. You know, he would just go out there and be like, I have no shame about this because I'm doing a good thing. Yeah, and he was obviously... Did you uh, did you see that band at all? Mescaleros? Yeah. No. Because it was so obvious that he was having a fucking great time on stage. Like, it, he, he just looked like he was so psyched to be up there. And it was you like, hear it in the records. I yeah, mean, you hear it in the records, energy too. energy is so fun. And, like, they're doing so... It's hard to do a, a polyphony of styles. But he could always, I think... Yeah, find that's an the, organic way to that's do... That's the biggest musical tragedy of all oh, time. Everybody else, yeah. like, you know, I mean, <laughs> Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix, I mean, these are like... But fucking, he was that's like... That's an old tale. This was like... He was vital yeah. and, like, happy and, like... Ugh, brings a tear to my eye right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, that, that's murdersome. Uh, this one comes from our good friend... Uh, so Brent. reunions are good if Joe Strummer's doing them. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, just stay at home and get a paycheck. Figure out how to sell your song as iTunes or Volkswagen, you know. Save, save everyone the headache. Uh, that's your new business card. All bands being asked to reunite. Stay at home. Uh, this comes from our good friend Brendan Casey. This is important. What's your favorite meal in New York City? It's going to be one I make at home for my girl and me. It'll involve any locally grown <laughs> amazing things that I put together. I like to cook, so ah, that'll be it. Right on. And uh, well, what's your specialty then? Oh yeah, I do like a summer Italian. I like cold, fresh pastas with tons. Um, not tons. Really simple, but just elegant Alice Waters type cooking, where it's just fresh, fast, flash frying, or like, and then chilling. You know, noodles, mm. noodles, vegetables, a lot I of like olive oil, a lot of olives, salad, yeah. Mediterranean, just anything like that reflects that kind of cooler summer food or hot, hot climate food. And of course, Mexican, because that's what I grew up with. So I like to use a lot of avocados, a lot of cilantro, lime, All right. peppers. I'm sorry, the answer was number seven, sup. That was the answer. <laughs> so a seven layer burrito basically is what I'm good at. That was it. Um, we had, uh, we've had a couple times on the podcast, our friend Lyle Presslar from Minor Threat. And he told us a very interesting story that I hope segues into something interesting as well. That when the book Our Band Could Be Your Life came out, he never called back Michael Azarad and then finds there's a chapter written about his band in the book, which I read and really enjoyed. But upon hearing that, it made me skeptical. And recently on Facebook, you took the gentleman to task. And we got a he litany. never called me back either. No. Couldn't believe it. He, he wrote a whole book without me. Yeah. So you and he too, never even yeah. called me back. Hmm. 
No, I love these guys. They're great. You know, the people that do this work, it's so selfless. And, um, you know, I think Kurt is probably smiling and everyone's happy that someone's getting the record straight. <laughs> so, yeah, I think what the world needs now is definitely another, you know, punk memoir by a person who doesn't even go out of their cubicle. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> I wish him all the luck in the world with his business. <laughs> that was the number one question of like, not number one, but that was in all the people we asked to write questions because we're all fans follow you. And they were like, what was that about? I wouldn't. And I feel it's giving the whole thing too much credit to mm -hmm. attribute it to a person. Right. I never read that book. I, I did read the juicy parts and I loved them. Mm -hmm. Anything about the butthole surfers is going to be amazing. Yeah, right. I mean, just tell stories. Sure. That hit a nerve and that was great. Mm hmm. It's more the careerism of this. And so, you know, I can think of a few names, but I really don't follow that world. Mm -hmm. It's just when that becomes the, the def definitive story of these bands and little microcultures, then I think, then I get bummed. I think it's, it's unfair to the, the people who are there and the actual bands, the music, and the fans. It is an interesting parallel. We had um, uh, the late Arturo Vega in here. Uh, who's a friend of ours, and um, we asked him, I think you might, might have been Jonah who asked him, what's the best Ramones, like, story? What's the best biography? Because there's just so many. It's like, what was definitive? Mm -hmm. And he said it was one, like, you know, in 94, like, years before they broke up, before any of them died. And, like, he said, like, to have someone who was there say this specific book, he said it was researched well, he talked to everybody, they put it together, and it's hard to to retell that and your story that i just remember reading about from i remember tower records put out a magazine that said yeah. uh, uh jawbreaker goes mersh and i remember like what the hell does mersh mean <laughs> i still what have does it. mersh mean it meant commercial because it was uh, right when you guys were you know moving to that big major label uh world that happened and it was weird because i didn't that that wasn't one an odd title but the magazine was free you got it when you walked in so i guess they can put whatever the fuck they want but uh, it was like I'm reading about someone I admire and whose music touches me filtered through a journalist. And Jonas is a journalist and I've written. It's just hard to, I don't know, it's weird. It's like that weird, how do you do it? How do you like? Don't put this on me, man. I'm not just asking. <laughs> yeah, did, so you, wait a minute. You Who broke punk with the, uh, didn't we get someone earlier? Oh, I broke it. Um, that was me. Oh, was yeah, you. that was yeah, Steven. I did. It and was after. broke journalism? I broke journalism, and Trevor's trying to put it back together, I think. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. I mean, it's a lot of, it's a healing project. Like, I think for older people who still stay with in music and like, you know, there's got to be some kind of, I think, consensus to drive out some of this nonsense. Be like these little climbers, back climbers, I call them, like, who come in and just be like, hey, I could do a clean, clean quick business here. Just, I'll just write 25,000 words about whoever just died, you know, and just sell it. it. It seems to me that there's been this shift in journalism where it was, the, I love the new journalism of the 70s, like when the culture was freaking out and, you know, Joan Didion was writing first person from the trenches totally reactionary i mean whatever her but it just transcended news gathering in a way it's this new kind of writing now i think people read that and think they can do it and they're the center of their story but they're doing a puff piece or they're doing a you know a portrait and yet they're the story every this is what i dislike yeah, about those that's books the worst. yeah 
you suddenly realize, like, God, I'm not even hearing about Joe Strummer anymore. I'm hearing about how this person felt about his apartment. Right. And, like, one will notice in Joe's flat, you know, several commemorative iron crosses in the corner. Hmm, what's that about? <laughs> like, suddenly the whole story is about the journalist, and that to me is, what happened? It's like editorializing. John, what happened? <laughs> Why like, did you break I'm journalism? I'm sorry, I had a rough couple of years, and just <laughs> kind of self-involved, and I don't know. Yeah, you, you just got a co-op over here in Williamsburger, and you're like, <laughs> I gotta make the payments. <laughs> things are Jesus. not cheap. They're I not guess cheap. I could do the Amy Winehouse book. The like, burger. The houses are one. not cheap, yeah. Yeah. Baby needs sunglasses, you know? That's what I said. <laughs> Are you going to do any reissues of the Jets records? I don't know. You know, that's funny. We never really broke up. It was pretty gentle in that band. It was just like people were moving, getting married, and it was adult times. Wasn't there going to be a tour that didn't happen for after Perfecting Loneliness? Or Well, that was, yeah. I had a an episode, so I just decided. I, I didn't decide. It was decided by me. <laughs> by my mind that i could not leave my apartment mm -hmm. for a month and um so we yeah we had to cancel and then we did our makeup tour like a year later was for six months it was it was a long build up to get back into that was that anxiety or i don't see i don't like i feel it uh, well, no i think it was me it was being alive like i was suffering from having been alive for 39 years or whatever you know? <laughs> I don't pathologize behavior anymore because I think that's such an industry. Mm -hmm. But if by anxiety you mean like shaking, chain smoking, sitting on the corner of my tub, going like, how am I going to tell these guys I can't go? I, I did have that. Yep. So good. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I can write an article about that. We can talk about it. I can filter it through my brain. Yeah, you can ask. Because well, you why had anxiety once, but then the clonopin kind of helped. But mostly I'm on a, a cocktail of Wilbutra and Zoloft and... That seems to be working pretty well. Anyway, back to Blake. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he, if you were to go to Blake's apartment, you would know, notice a couple small uh, Illuminati kind of type items. And, uh, I don't know. It just makes you wonder. But anyway. Hey man, yeah, I don't know. Who's going who's gonna to change this? Or do they just get to, do the, do the robots just get to run the asylum what do you with think? their ATM cards? I was thinking of that pavement line, which I loved without even knowing, you know, in the unconscious Malcolmus genius, he talks about waving pagers like they just don't care. You know that song? It's about California, so I automatically was like, he's singing about the valley. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Anyway, I just think of that, you know, waving their ATM cards like they just don't care. They definitely own it right now. They own it monetarily. I mean... Materially, they own it. They own you. Uh, next tour is Europe. That's right. I've been driven out of America by these ATM-waving zealots. On a rail. I'm going to a more kind of secular country <laughs> system. If you could, for us, and I've asked many people to do this, and no one's taken me up on it, write down every question the German journalist will ask you. Really? Yeah. Because they always, there's stories of them just ask, because they always have, every band I've talked to has something about how they, they, there's no filter. So to be like, you know, this song is great, but you seem to have gained weight. Yeah, you absolutely. Yeah. No, I love that. about. Yeah. I mean, I'm Swiss, so, mm -hmm. 
you know. Oh, yes. This ain't my first rodeo. You know? <laughs> These kids come at me with that, and I'm like, oh, Hans, I know you. Well, it's, it's, of course, I did put on the weight, but it's just only because I have a drinking problem. It's the, it's the alcohol content. It's not the chocolate. But you're right. This show was not good. Not good. We get that. I mean, Jets got it. We, we were a little thin-skinned about it. For, uh, forgetters did really well over there. Maybe we were a better band, but Jawbreaker, man, we used to freak out because they would come up and just say, like, this this was not a good show. <laughs> and we and actually, it wouldn't have been. We would have, like, really blown it because sound, amps, whatever. But to have someone, a big man, come up and tell you that immediately when you walk off stage. Like, there was a few nights where I would, like, shoulder check somebody or we would just, just tear up the room and be like, fuck you guys, we're out of here. <laughs> you know, and then over time, I discovered it's actually just cultural... It's cultural. I think a lot of it's language and the history of, you know, social codes. Like Germans are the most emo, sweetheart, like love music mm-hmm. people I've met. And that it just took me a while to figure out how we're communicating. Then suddenly they're like, this song is making me cry. <laughs> when you do the Sweet Avenue, I'm, my heart is, it's on the floor. I don't know what words. <laughs> like there's that too. They're not just these brutes. Right. You know? I think that's kind of a, provincial when the americans go over and they're like they're such assholes like, <laughs> you're such a sissy like why don't you just push back and say what you didn't like it why that's all they want i think is to converse you know took blake korksenbach to to find the german journalist for us see here's the thing about blake so at already People have asked me, like, what would you do if Blake was here? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. It would freak me out. So I'm, I'm gearing up. This is before the podcast. And I go to this, I go to the one of the many bagel places in the area. And I walk up and I'm ordering something. And I'm standing there. I'm waiting. And Blake just rides up on a bicycle. And I'm like, oh, now I, not I have ready. to. Not ready. So I walk up. I'm like, hey, hey, I'm, you're, we're talking in a minute. He's like, oh, great. And he couldn't have been nicer and just so cool and then after the podcast we just hung out and talked and it was just great and if, if you're um for christopher lager that's the other one we didn't mention earlier yes christopher lager one of his um many pseudonyms uh when he, he does he posts some things on facebook that he's ridiculously funny like he'll do some funny little videos they are hilarious and his you got you see you've seen him solo and his um solo performances we talked about it are pretty much performance art youtube them they're great because he's now throwing in some Jawbreaker songs and some Jet songs. Yes. And yeah, he, he ha- never has actually when I've seen him, but Trevor Kelly has sent video of him starting to do it. Yeah, well, like that's like when, when Trevor emails me or texts me, it's usually about Blake, and I like that. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I want to thank Matt um, from Generation Records and everything who helped set up the Blake thing. He was super helpful, and uh, he's an awesome dude. And uh, also beyond cool, he hung out too. Just yeah, great. he hung out. But yeah, so thanks for making this happen. It was kind of complicated to schedule and took a long time. Um, and I'm super happy with how it came out. Yeah, I, I don't get to say this awesome, this uh, this often, 
but a literal dream come true for me. So thank yeah. you very much, Matt, for having us. Blake, thanks for hanging out. Um, you can come back in any time you and, want. <laughs> and Michael Azarad, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Oh, yeah, Michael, thank you. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> we hope you're a fan. Oh, Lord. We'll get Mike in here and we'll talk yeah, about it. Yeah, that would be awesome. We can, we, we'll hash it all out, guys. Uh, if you want to critique this episode, go ahead and hit us up at facebook.com slash going off track. Um, nothing you say will hurt me. Uh, go to goingofftrack.com if you like what you hear and like the wonderful job Jonah's been doing of booking us all these awesome guests and you want to buy Jonah a bagel or something, hit the donate button and we will make that happen. Or we'll use it to pay for the website, which is what I normally do. Um, follow us on Twitter at going off track. You can't make a bagel without dough. That's right. Damn. Yeah. How does that? How do I not think of that? Lord help. Because you're not. <laughs> it's good. It's a curse. Uh, but yeah. Follow us online. Going off track on Twitter. Follow on Jonah Facebook. at a gig or a DJ. Yeah. Give us. I, I DJ the third Thursday of every month at Idle Hands. Come to that. DJing mm-hmm. in Drublick. We're on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Sound advice is uh, is uh, a thing I do that's on YouTube. So uh, much shit going United on. Nations is a band I do that you can't find anywhere online except <laughs> we are on Twitter. Uh, and just check out our stuff, I guess. And if you have a band that's unsigned and want to record, then go to Rubber Tracks where you'll find Brad. But only if you're good. Yeah, yeah if you suck, don't, don't yeah. bother. Pr- keep practicing. That, it takes, it really takes a while. That's really subjective, and we we don't know we don't know your deal. We'll hear you next week. <laughs> Acast recommends more podcasts, more episodes, more great shows. Keep listening to hear a new episode we recommend. Wayland Productions presents. Last time someone tried to collapse a tribe, two more sprouted up. And they keep getting more and more complex. These kids got their whole lives ahead of them. I mean, why go through all this training just to do nothing? Do not ever forget. There are still monsters among them. How are you all dealing with this so calmly? We're alive. Descendants. Premieres April 5th. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts. Everywhere. Acast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.